Welcome to Method to the Mathness podcast, a podcast about the universal truths in mathematics teaching and learning. We are your hosts, Nikki Lalonde and Jennifer Lenhart, and we are so glad you're here. Our hope and our vision and goal for this podcast is to have conversations that both affirm what we know to be true about teaching and learning mathematics and to inspire all of us to keep growing and learning. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We are looking forward to this conversation with you both, Nicole and Leveda. We're so excited. Um, For those listeners that might not know much about you, would you each take a minute real quick and tell us a little bit about who you are and your role with mathematics teaching and learning? Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Nikki. Um, I'm Levada Gray, and I am a director of professional learning for Math Solutions. And what that really means is that I partner with districts in the Mid Atlantic around um, their mathematical instructional needs. And so we partner, come up with plans around what their teachers need, what their students need, what their district leaders need to help them transform their mathematics teaching. I'm also a newly um, a new blogger. And so I am excited to share um, what I've been writing about on my blog called Black Girl Math. That is exciting. Hi, I'm Nicole Bridge. Um, I'm a professional learning consultant with Math Solutions in the Northeast. And so what that means for me is that I get to have coaching conversations with teachers and do professional learning days with them and spend time in their classroom. So I'm, I'm up close and with teachers in the classroom. So I'm with them and partnering with them in their learning, which is really exciting. So as you both know, something that's, that we're all four of us are passionate about is really understanding um, everyone's math story because everyone has one and not everyone is taking the time to necessarily pause and think about what their math story is. So I'm going to kind of turn the tables around and ask you, you, the both of you to share What's your math story? And I guess, Nicole, let's go ahead and start with you. And um, I'll let you interpret that question however you want to interpret it and share with, us, share with us your math story. My math story, when I think about that, I have a really key moment in my childhood that I think shapes how I saw myself as a math person. When I was in whatever grade it was, I can't remember if it was fourth or something like that, we were doing long division. And it was very procedural, just the algorithm. It wasn't based in concept at all. It was just do the steps and make the answer pop out. And while I was really good at that for everything else we had been doing, I'm really good at replicating procedures. I could not, I could not make that happen with long division. And so one Saturday, my mother took me to my grandparents' house and my grandfather, this like big World War II veteran, sat at the kitchen table with me for hours. And we did probably a million long division problems. And he had one of those um, like register tapes uh, holders that you would write grocery lists on. I don't know if that's familiar to any of you, but I have a a very vivid memory of it. They're great for long division because you can just keep pulling that paper out and make it as long (laughs) as you need to. (laughs) And so we did a thousand problems, long division problems. And whenever I would get one right, he would say, good, do another one. And whenever I would get one wrong, he'd say, no, do another one. And- (laughs) Um, I, I was exhausted and I was crying. My mother was in the other room crying and my grandmother was there with her like, no, she has to learn to do this. So, cause I think my mom was like, make it stop. And, um, (laughs) but, but by the end of that day, I, I left and walked out of the house with 
a couple of things really solid in my mind. Number one, I was exhausted, but I knew how to make right answers pop out of the long division algorithm. And something else that was solid in my mind that I didn't realize until years later was that my my uncles were engineers, my grandfather was an engineer, and by virtue of being in that family, they were going to support me in also being a math person. And so hmm. the idea of struggle as part of the process, what was there, um, and the idea that I can do math and I would get support when I couldn't was also there. And I think that's how I've approached uh, math my whole life after. That's fascinating. I, I think it's so interesting that the reward and the punishment was do, do another problem. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> that was my grandfather. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I think that's really interesting. I also think what's fascinating about that. Thank you for sharing your story. I think what's fascinating about that too, is what you pulled from that. Um, and then how that influenced, you know, you moving forward in, in your math story. So thanks for sharing that, Nicole. Mm-hmm. Levita, how about you? So my math story is interesting because it um, so started at school and also at home. Um, my parents were really big into playing games. And I remember being one vivid memory is um, playing and we used to play a lot of card games. And also my father would, you know, when he was at home, he would teach us another game and he actually taught us um, crafts. And so at home, and so I did a lot of addition. So I never really thought about it. It was just like, it was really a game to me. And it wasn't until, and I really just thought of myself as a reader. Um, and that was because my mother had all kinds of books, all tif- different genres around the house. So I, you could easily find me, especially in the summers when it was good weather, because I lived in Chicago, out on the porch, having a snack and just like diving into a book, a magazine, or, or I was a reader. And so it wasn't until I was in about, I think it's sixth grade, because my, my math teacher, he, um, so my oldest brother myself and my youngest brothers went all went to the same like small parochial school. And so my brother had the same math teacher. I had the same math teacher. Um, and so he approached my mother by the end of like sixth grade and said to my mother, like, I really think Levada should um, take seventh grade math at summer school so that she can be in eighth grade. She can start taking pre, uh, pre-algebra. And it was just like, I hadn't even thought of it. I mean, math was just something to do or was, or it was a game or it was super fun, but I never thought of myself of like, oh, I can start taking advanced mathematics. And so um, it was something that it was just like, I was encouraged to do. And I said, okay, that's fine. Um, Cause again, I, we always knew like summer school to be like type of a punishment, but it really was like something that pushed me ahead. And so I just started taking, you know, math classes by the time I was in algebra, um, there was four of us. So four um, of us like were in a small little group taking algebra together. And then it just like kind of opened the door for me in high school where I got to take like trig and I also um, dabbled into calculus. Um, but yeah, I just never thought of myself because I always thought of myself like I even became a journalism major. So I just never, <laughs> I just never thought like, oh yeah, let me, you know, go out and be an engineer. It just wasn't, you know, although my dad was like a processor and so he made all types of um, 
he is, you know, um, while he was there, he made a lot of like all of the products for Avon. So he made shampoos and he would like call me up and give me like little um, like like measurement conversions that I had to do. And so I would like go and go look those up for him and just. But, yeah, it was it was really interesting. So I kind of had like the best of both worlds and didn't know until, you know, um, more and more once I became a classroom teacher, how much I really love math and how important it was to be, you know, hands on. So that's my math story. Mm-hmm. It was something mm-hmm. for me to do. <laughs> so in terms of how those stories impact the work that you do, can you see a correlation or a path or a way that that initial journey through math learning impacts your approach to your current jobs? Absolutely for me. Like one, when I became a classroom teacher, so I started off as a, well, I started off as a fourth grade teacher, like on my own. But once I was going through, um, you know, getting my teacher credential, because it's something I went back to school for, um, you know, I supported a fourth and fifth grade classroom and then also first grade as well. And so in my classrooms, I made sure that there were math games available as well as other games, because I feel like it was mm. it was an important part for my students. And it was an important part of my, you know, math story of like being able to mm. talk through mathematics, you know, have some hands on. Like I remember those um, wooden um, uh, base 10 blocks that were bright orange. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to have all that in my classroom available for my students. At some point in fourth grade, I realized I'm like, you know what? I and there was some ways like there was real there was a lot of problem solving in my mathematics classroom going up growing up, but there was also a focus on like memorizing basic facts. And so once I got to teaching the the fractions unit, I was just like, I need some more support. So I literally went back to mm-hmm. school. At the time there were there were they were offering classes um in at UCLA. So I taught in Los Angeles and so I just went back to school and I took fourth and fifth grade math and I got Call it, you know, credit for it. And so I really learned how to be even more conceptual and dig deeper into the concepts and blend that with like games and tools and conversations. And I think, I think for me, that idea of um, family influence, like the, the, my, the influence my family's had on me, I, I definitely think I carry with me in the classroom in the sense that I believe that math is something that can be figured out. And that mm-hmm. you are capable of doing it. I don't think I had language until until much, many years later. I didn't have language for that idea of there's no such thing as a math gene. It's it's all yeah. about effort makes builds ability. I don't think I had language for that, but I had that idea in my head of oh, you just this is just like the new thing you can't do right now, but you'll be able to do it. Remember all the things you couldn't do before, and you worked really hard to get through them. Well, this is just that new thing you can't do yet. And I think I've, I've brought that mentality into the classroom. I also think in terms of the way my family has influenced me, I come from a family that speaks in analogy really well. Um, I, don't, I don't know how else to, <laughs> to explain it yeah. other than that. Like they, when you can't understand something, they will always find another way to explain it to you in a way that you can't understand. And I've had students in the past tell me, Miss Bridge, you explain things in a way that really makes sense to me. And so right. I think that idea of, okay, this isn't working for you. Let me try another way. I think I've I've brought that into the classroom as well. I'm hearing a couple things kind of bubble out out of that. You know, first of all, 
you know, Laveda, you mentioned like math can be fun, right? And when you think about the gamification of math, whether it's physical games and manipulatives or, or a digital game, it's, it's something that can, we can enjoy and we can be resilient about. And, and Nicole, something that, sh- that popped out to me is that it's really about the belief that two beliefs that I heard loud and clear that math, that your students can do the math um, and that productive struggle is actually productive and that also math is supposed to make sense. Yeah. Um, And I think that throughout the both of your, you know, Jennifer, great question about how does this influence the work that you do now? I think what flows out of there are some really incredible universal truths and beliefs about teaching and learning. Yeah. You both sort of described, I don't know if we like a set of values in a way about, students about teaching, about learning. And those values are, as with most of us, born out of our childhood experiences. Absolutely. One of the things that it made me, especially with the games, and that's why I encourage other teachers to think about how do they put games if they're doing math workshop, math menu, uh, thinking about a strategy. I really had to, because I wanted to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was, you know, six of us sitting around sometimes, you know, playing Uno or playing, I think I remember um, playing with my older brother, we used to play, I guess it's Gin Romy. I had a different name for it because I never learned the name. <laughs> so obviously, I never learned that I was playing craps. And I also learned situational appropriateness as well because um, <laughs> my brother was older than I was. And so, you know, I was always on the front porch reading in the summertime. And so his friends started to play the game outside. And I was like, Ooh, I know how to play that game. So I, you know, dropped my book. I went down to play and my father was like, no, no. He's like, come back here. And so I wasn't supposed to play the game outside of the house. (laughs) Secrets, deep, dark family secrets. I'm telling them all today. (laughs) So good. I want to shift gears for a second. I'm so curious. Um, I want to have a conversation with you both about identity and also about diversity. And and part of the reason that I think these topics are so critical is because as teachers, we know that we occupy certain identity categories and our students um, may or may not be receptive in a way or perhaps even engage with those identities in some in a way that is sort of there's some inherent conflict, if you will. And what I'm thinking about specifically is the, I occupy, when I walk into the classroom as a white female, as a teacher, I occupy a position of power. And for many of my students, I represent a system that has caused their existence to be particularly difficult. And so what I'm curious to sort of talk with you both about is how teachers can mitigate the impact of those identity um, tensions, maybe. So you are, so teachers are both honoring to who they are, as well as making space for their students to be and become who they are as well. Who wants to start? I can, I can start if that's okay. Yeah. Um, So I think part of, part of a, a good first step is recognizing that those identities exist and that hmm. those identities impact the way that we move through the world. And it seems a basic step, but what what we know to be true is that uh, whiteness, and when I'm saying whiteness, I'm talking about, certainly I'm talking about race, but I'm also talking about um, ways that align with the dominant cultural ways of being. So in the United States, we're talking about um, white, male, cisgender, 
heterosexual Christian, um, yep. English speaking. So when you align with those ways, you you don't see those identities. So I'm less aware of my whiteness because I walk in spaces where it's affirmed and mirrored back to me all the time. And so be, because of that, I am often unaware of the ways that 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 impacts the assumptions that I have and the narratives that I create about the world around me. So I think a really good first step is just naming it and recognizing it and stepping back to say, okay, so how does my experience, cause I can only know my own experience. How does right. my experience inform the assumptions that I'm bringing to this situation? And how are those assumptions impacting the way that I'm, I'm making decisions and acting in this situation? I agree with Nicole in terms of thinking about that identity and, and making sure that it's in one of the things that I remember early on from my elementary school teacher. So I went to the same school for kindergarten through eighth grade was that they saw us like the, the fact that my math teacher understood my math abilities even before I did and was able to tell my mother, Hey, let's, let's get a, get Levena on a different plan. And so they just saw us, they saw, they mm-hmm. saw each of us. Like I was six years younger than my oldest brother and I had a different, well, some of the different teachers, but I never felt like I was ever compared to my brother. Um, it was a little bit tougher for me because I had a brother who was a year, a year younger than me. And so we were in the same classroom every other year, but still we were able to be recognized even though we shared the same spaces. And so I think it's important that, and my teachers didn't, many of them didn't look like me. Um, growing up between kindergarten through eighth grade, I had two African-American teachers. And so that is huge in terms and thinking about like populations of schools today where I was right. able to be proud of my background, um, proud of who I was and also taught like, hey, this is who you are. And this is that doesn't mean just because you are from the neighborhood that I was from or the household I was from, that that had anything to do with what you were capable of doing or learning. And so our teachers really pushed us. Um, I mean, I was, you know, pushed into higher mathematics, even though I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I struggle with problem solving and oftentimes would try and skip it, but I wasn't allowed to. And so thinking about like what, how that made me into the mathematician I am, um, it just, or even the student that I am, like I can always learn as Nicole says, like there's always something that I can do. And also that there was support for me. Like even once I was in high school and got into higher mathematics, I was able to come back and ask my teacher, like I would show up to school really early. He was available that whole time and he would get to school early and he would help, help me with my math before I had to get on the bus to go to my high school. Um, and so that really made an impact of like that I was I was seen and heard. I think I think Levada, what's what's really like resonating through my head listening to you is the the phrase my teacher saw me, and yeah, and it and it makes me wonder how many of our students and and I always include myself in that we um, is how many of our students we don't see or how many of our students do we see as their label. Um, or their or their test score before we've ever met them, and so we're not seeing them in the fullness of their humanity and the fullness of their of their possibility. But we're seeing, you know, we only we see one small part of them and not the fullness of who they are. And it sounds like your teachers 
saw you in the fullness of who you were. Absolutely. And it took a part of creating what else I could be. Like they gave me the opportunities. And that's one of the things that I always told my, my own mm. students in the classroom. You, no matter what you want to do, no matter who you want to be, because one of my mother's like famous lines is that she's like, whatever you want to be, you just need to be the best. And so even if you want to be a consultant, mm. you need to be the best. Or or like one of my brother, my youngest brother's mechanic, you have to be the best mechanic. And, you know, he supports a whole mm. fleet of vehicles for the, you know, for the post office. And so just things like that. It's just like, you still have to try no matter what you're going to do. And that was like a message well received. As I'm listening to you both talk, I'm so curious, this idea of seeing, being seen for who you are and who you are becoming. And I'm thinking, I have two questions top of mind. One is it just causes me to pause and reflect and think about the ways that we design professional learning experiences for teachers that also make space for them to be fully seen for who they are and who they are becoming as teachers in the adult learning space. I'm transferring and reflecting a minute on my own on that. But I'm also wondering for teachers who are aware that there is work to be done in their own classrooms as far as seeing the whole student and really bringing to life who those students are becoming what are the actionable and this, you know, Nikki, you brought this up in our sort of pre-conversation, some ideas about how do we get started doing that? So we recognize that there's a gap between what we want to be have happening in our classes and what is happening. What do we suggest to teachers, to leaders who are looking to sort of shift and start seeing whole students in their whole schools? schools? I want to connect to something that Nicole said, and, and I'll have Nicole join in, which was... You got to name it. You got to know that you'll, you know, if, if you have a different background, different ethnicity, um, you know, or various layers of, you know, culture, if you, if you're different, you got to acknowledge that you have to know what makes you different and you have to understand, like, what does that mean in terms of values, Jen, you shared this earlier, what that means in terms of values in your own classroom, and then also recognize and take it a step further of, how are my students different, similar, and how do I make them seen, heard, welcomed in this space? Um, I have, you know, a lot of my friends are teachers. Two of my, three of my best friends are teachers. Shout out to them. Um, and so just thinking about how they, you know, how do we, you know, because some teachers think like this is my space and students are, you know, welcome in here for about 45 minutes or they're welcome in here for the whole day. But this is really my space. And I often see in the classrooms or districts that I work with now, sometimes I'll see that like the classrooms are very decorated and there's no space for student work or spaces for students to see themselves because it's sort of like I've decorated this this is what it is. And then students have to kind of fit into this space, but it's not co-created. Absolutely. And so Levita, I mean, like what is just coming to the top of mind? I don't think I've ever shared this with you before, but many, many years ago, I mean, as we've been working together for several years now, um, and I'm not even going to say that I'm embarrassed or ashamed to admit this. Um, I'm going to say I'm really proud that um, something you said has impacted and influenced me is, you know, um, the idea of colorblindness. 
And I think I, there were decades where I was proud of like saying, no, like I am colorblind in my classroom and in the work that I do. And something that you said is you, you is many years ago, you can't be colorblind. And you weren't saying this to me, you were making a general, a statement to a group of people. You can't be colorblind. I need you to see me for who I am and what color I am. And that was so powerful and has, I would say I have that at the top of mind in every conversation, in every session, in every co-teaching or coaching opportunity that I have, whenever I'm thinking about supporting districts and plans that they have for increasing teaching and learning in their, in their districts, uh, that is at the forefront of my mind. It has truly impacted the way that I view the work that we do. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Nikki, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, it, I think I think it just lends to the notion of what does it mean to be seen, and um, and the impact of that. And I just you know I felt like that really connected to what you were just sharing. So, Levada, you mentioned specifically, and you know, so Nikki, you're saying this idea about being seen and these ideas of um, really noticing and holding, sometimes holding the tension between spaces where students are, do belong and maybe spaces where they don't and naming that and recognizing it. Laveda, you mentioned that um, something like taking a look around your classroom and wondering, is there space here for student work or have I filled this space with the things that I want students to see and know? And it's not that there's a right or a wrong. It's just that those choices impact whether or not students feel like they belong. So their sense of Um, whether or not they also get to contribute or be part of that space or that the space reflects back to them their own ideas and thinking. So that feels like one tangible thing a teacher could do. Um, What are a couple, can we add a couple other things? And I'm, you know, I don't necessarily have um, predefined answers in my mind, but other things teachers can do when they are asking the question, how do I gut check about whether or not I'm making space for my students to belong? Something that I'm thinking about as as I'm listening to everyone talk is so often this I, whenever I meet teachers or I'm in classrooms, they'll lead with the labels. Oh, well, this class is predominantly special ed or this class is predominantly English language learners or, you know, or, the, or well, that student is and then they'll give me some labels. And I, I'm wondering about myself as a classroom teacher, thinking about my students who struggled both in mathematics and students that struggled in my class behaviorally, I'm wondering, what did I really know about that student outside of how they showed up in my class? And it's making me wonder, particularly on the days when we're struggling, particularly on the days when we're having difficulty getting through to to a kid, whatever that looks like in that moment, what if we just sat down and reflected just for two minutes? Let's start naming things I know about this student outside of my classroom. And, and I'm, I'm wondering that because I think it grounds us in the humanity of that person, of that child. And yeah, and, um, I've, I've presented at several conferences and a friend of mine and I once uh, did it several times, a session called Single Stories in Our Classroom, What Are We Missing? And it was based on um, the, the TED Talk by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie called Danger of a Single Story. Totally worth a listen if you've never mm-hmm. heard it. And we started by having teachers, we, we had big pieces of chart paper in the table and we had labels that we give to kids. So things like ELL, special ed, at risk. Um, and we had, everybody took a, a, a single color marker, everyone had a black marker. And we, we said, let's go around and treat them like graffiti mats. What are things we hear people say about kids with these labels? 
so they they wrote things and and it was a lot of deficit minded thinking and so we put the, those markers away we had some more conversation and then we came back and we gave them multicolored markers and we said now i want you to think about a person in your life that has that label it might be a student in your class it might be you growing up it might be a friend a relative i want you to think about if all we thought about was that label what would we be missing and people wrote things like they love animals they love books they love their friends like it was all really positive uplifting like brought tears to your eyes kind of it was a remarkable difference from the original conversation to this new conversation so i think um that was a long way to say how do we do that for the kids in front of us so how often are we as teachers sitting down and just saying going through our class roster and just saying what do i know about the kids in front of me and if the answer is i can't say anything about the except for what i see in the classroom then the, that is an indication that there needs to be more relationship built there i need to get to know this student because they are more than the student who struggles in my math class they are more than the student who is sometimes disruptive in my math class so let let me go find out who they are and that connection i think can help build positive relationships that will ultimately help you better teach that student it's such a beautiful and freeing notion that we are so much bigger than those single moments whether they're moments of struggle or moments of learning or even moments of shining right so we could have teachers also reflecting on students in their classes where they are labeled quote unquote a perfect student or um they're an idea i hear this a lot she's just an ideal math student and i'm like gosh i hope you see her for who she is in her entirety outside of her performance in your class um but i think that what you're talking about is a beautiful opportunity. I think it translates out of not just not just how we encounter students in our classes, but also those that we're in relationship with, whether it's other teachers, our administrators, um, even in our role in our professional world, even in our neighbors. But the idea that each person has a whole story and that there's a possibility we've seen a snippet, a chapter, the blog post, but we haven't maybe seen the whole book, read the whole book. And that um, as as those stories continue to be written, we are responsible to continue to read, if you will. And I think in in my conversations with, I, I work with math teachers, and I hear so often little like joking moments of, oh, I spelled that word wrong. Well, I'm a math person, not a reading person. And I know that people make that joke a lot, and I never let anyone get away with it. <laughs> because what I, what yeah. I continually say is, you are more than one thing. So you you yeah. can be a math person and attend to precision in the way that you write and read. <laughs> like you can be you can be all of those things in one time. And and I think even those kinds of small jokes can plant seeds that it's okay. And we see this in our society all the time where people mm -hmm. don't joke about their deficits in their literacy, but they'll joke about not being a math person all the time. Mm -hmm. And we, yeah. we that plants the seed that it's okay and that struggle is expected. But, but I think it doesn't have to be that way. It can be, well, struggle is, is part of the road to, to proficiency and understanding and mastery. And what I'm hearing throughout all of this is how do we get kids to see themselves as math learners? It starts with us. We need to first see and believe that they can be math learners. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. I think, and, and that, that relationship can't be taken for granted um, so I had done, um, so for my first three years of teaching, I had worked in a 
school in a low income neighborhood in Los Angeles. And that and I had a classroom full of students um, that were African-American and Latino who were, um, you know, they had various struggles. And so it was super important for me. Um, I remember it was one student and let's call him Jack. And Jack um, was a fourth grader in my classroom and he had struggled. He just really struggled and he just had a hard time. And I just noticed, and actually this was like within like the first couple of weeks of school. And I can admit this because I didn't do every day well. And there was like, uh, you know, some years that just didn't go well because of my own need to build those relationships and my own need to address like my trauma and heal. And so, you know, and sometimes my students pay for that, but I do remember with Jack, he one morning and, and for mornings in a row, he just came in with just like, he was just having a hard time. He like, as I would say, came in with an attitude. And one morning I turned, I called him over before he'd gone to a seat because he had to go through, you know, like the whole classroom before he got to a seat. And I, I just said, come here for a second. He's like, hey, I was like, I get it. If you need a minute, if you need to like stand outside, calm down you know, get ready for the day. I totally understand. What you can't do is come in here and cause all kinds of hell. And as soon as the word came out of my mouth, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going to lose my job. This is my first job as a fourth grade teacher. Um, I was like, what you can't do is like, you know, like pretty much what I was trying to say is like, you can't take it out on everyone else. And it just, it just kind of changed once I addressed it. Like I just called, like I kind of called him out on it. Like I get it. I get if you're frustrated, I get if you're angry and, you know, like had to deal with some stuff at home, but you got to like be able to like be here. So I wanted him to be able to like be here, but be here in a place for learning as well. And also how to deal with like, you know, like you, uh, cause a lot of times many of our students can't leave what is going on at home or what they just had to walk through in their neighborhoods to get, be present. And, you know, I already knew it was going to be a hard morning for him if I just, you know, let him go to his seat. Um, because it already had been hard mornings. I've been watching, I've been watching all my students for, you know, like for at least these couple weeks. And so that kind of like changed our relationship. And so, you know, he knew he could take a moment. He knew he could take some time and like, and like regroup and that it was, you know, that I, and I didn't know if it was going to be okay, but that he could, you know, have that space here. Um, and so surely thereafter, I had a, you know, a meeting with his mom and, you know, every teacher had been told, start off with the positive, like no matter what meeting you were going to have. And it was going to be a behavior meeting because he was, he was struggling. Um, and so I started off that meeting, you know, great advice, whoever said that and told teachers that a long time ago, do start off with it. Because by that point in time, by the time we had that meeting, I was able to list what worked and the, and Jack's strengths and, and his mom started crying. I started crying. Like it was just like he I think he even started crying once he saw his mom start crying. Because I think at that point, no one had really like taken everybody had like taken the time to tell all this negative thing about what Jack was doing, but never had, you know, shared what like what he had going for him. And that was truly from like all of my learning about culture responsive teaching. It's just like not as Nicole said, not teaching from this deficit or like there's something wrong with Jack, but more so like let's work with 
where he is. And so that, that, that really changed in bringing, being able to like bridge to his family life and being able to bridge to what, you know, what he was doing in the classroom to like, just like, Hey, we are here for you. You know, like I might not understand mm-hmm. everything that's going mm-hmm. on and you might not tell me everything that's going on, but I am here for you and this is a space yeah. for you. And yeah. so just thinking about how do we, again, like just, I don't, like you said, just like, um, I think Jen said earlier, just humanize and like, Hey, we all have bad days. Some of us have bad years, but like, how do we do that as well as bridge together? Whether it's like in the mathematical problems that we bring in the things that are in the classroom for our students to really like, um, really like uh, talk to their cultural behaviors. Like, Hey, like a lot of classrooms, I still walk into this day and students are sitting in rows or two by two, like diner sitting. And it's like really hard to have a conversation and turn and face yeah. someone and really get to know them and dig into a mathematical problem if the classroom isn't set up in that sense. Absolutely. So a couple of things I think come out here. I mean, and just even in particular at the end here. So the physical environment, you also mentioned the math that we're putting in front of these students. So I want, I, I'd love to hear Nicole, your thoughts on this and then turn to Levada as well. How does the math that we put in front of our students impact their identities? Um, I guess that's the first part of it. And then the second part, you know, we can tie this in, um, is how do our implicit biases then impact the math that we put in front of the kids? So kind of a two-parter, right? How does the math we put in front of them impact their identities? And then how do our implicit biases impact the math that we put in front of them? I think, um, something that's really resonating to me from Leveda's story is the idea of, I I recognize that a student in front of me might need a different accommodation for getting started in the day, but he's still being held to the same expectation for what he's doing in the classroom. So I'm going to make an accommodation so you can get into the room and get started, but I'm going to hold you to the same standard that I have everyone else. And I think sometimes and this is a little bit, I think, combining both of those parts of your question, Nikki, um, particularly in our in our schools where the students come from a different background than the teacher, um, particularly in schools where students get labeled, quote, at risk, there's this, there's this assumption of what home life looks like and that home life is a struggle. And because there's a struggle, I'm going to ease the struggle. Your life is hard. So the math I put in front of you, I'm going to make that a little easy because your life is rough. And I think it's intended to be like, oh, I get it. I, I want to honor that your your life is difficult. But at the same time, it's a it's an assumption we're making based on a bias we might not even realize we have about what home life looks like for for that student. And what we're saying to them is, your life is hard, therefore you're not worthy of the more rigorous learning experience. And maybe I'm making a couple of leaps there, but it's, I don't think I'm going too far when I say that. And kids know, kids know when, and, and everybody you talk to that grew up in, in an elementary school, that's like, oh yeah, there were the Eagles, you know, this was the Eagles group and the Robins group and the Sparrows group. You can name the, the groups with colors or cars or birds. Kids always know. <laughs> Kids always know like, oh, the blue group was like, those were the smart kids. And I was always in the yellow group. And the math we got looked very different than the math that they got. And so 
when you when you see that the math you're getting is drastically different, when the thinking that you're engaging in is very different than what other students in the class are doing, that fundamentally shapes the way you see yourself. And unfortunately, when um, we look at the math we're putting in front of our struggling learners, it tends to be very rote, very procedural, very devoid of any mathematical thinking. It's more about procedure replicating or regurgitating something you're meant to have memorized. Whereas the higher level thinking tasks go to the students who are deemed more capable. Or who've demonstrated that fluency with facts Right, or, or do something. school better. <laughs> I mean, like they they know how to right. play the game of school. Mm-hmm. And and I think yeah. one of the things that I constantly am saying is to teachers is don't assume that something like memorized math facts are the gatekeeper to higher level thinking. And and what we right. what we know from research is that higher level thinking is actually supports the learning of math facts. So when students can look for patterns and make connections and notice things and are given experiences to do that, that's whenever fluency really starts to show up. But I think that we have, it starts from a belief of all kids can engage in this thinking and we can, all kids can make sense of it. It's interesting you use, um, Leveda, sorry, I'm going to jump in real quick before you answer. Nicole, you mentioned the word assumptions a few times, and it's interesting that feels like a more inviting word than a bias. And maybe that's just because words smack of different things in different contexts. And so mm-hmm. when, we, when we're talking or analyzing our bias, it sort of feels like a laced accusation already, even though that's what it is, right? Like it is what it is. It is an implicit bias, whether or not you're aware of it or not. Um but there's something more inviting about considering what are the assumptions that I'm making. And I, it just is an interesting code switch, maybe, as I'm thinking about ways to keep the conversation out of territory that's defensive, because we don't get a lot of learning done when we're feeling super defensive um, in adult conversations and conversations with teachers and leaders. So I'm curious, I'm just noticing the way that you use the word assumptions as a synonym for bias um, and the different feelings that I felt hearing that word, which felt more like, oh, I can safely consider what I assume about students without being accused of being biased for what it's worth in this side conversation. No. And and I think that, um, so our assumptions are invisible to us. They might be totally visible to the kids sitting in front of me, but to me, my, my own assumptions are invisible. And so the act of, of noticing and naming my assumptions has to be an intentional practice that I'm working at every day. So So just pausing and saying, what assumptions might I be making here and who benefits from those assumptions and who does not? And then as an intellectual exercise, what would it sound like, feel like to make different assumptions and just play with it a little to go, oh, and that, that can help uncover the assumptions that I might be making. So what if I didn't assume that math facts were the gatekeeper to higher level thinking? What would it look like to make different assumptions? And One of the, and you bring up a great point, Jen and Nicole, in terms of those assumptions and implicit bias. Um, So one of the books that I quote a lot in my blog, um, Black Girl Math, is um, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. And she talks about, she really brings together all of the brain research and how it affects learning. And so in her book, she talks about that everyone has implicit bias. It's how we survive. It's it's what we do with that implicit bias or that quick judgment that we make to see, are we safe? Are we not safe? It's what we do with it and how people have systematized it to, to you know, 
to not support students or to not support people who have a di- different background than they do. Um, and so how, yeah. mm. so more so of thinking about like, what yeah. do we do with that information yeah. and how do we use that information that again, we have to make quick judgments, judgments, and then thinking about, so what do we do with that, especially when it comes to our students? And as Nicole said, are we make using that bias to not to teach them tricks or to um, mm. water down the mathematics mm. instead of allowing them time to constructively struggle um, and allowing them time to talk where and which is, you know, a cultural behavior for and I'm you know, not making any assumptions or generalizing all students of color. But for African-American students, that is where they thrive when they are able to when teachers really see how do they learn and incorporate that into their instruction. So how, how many times do students have an opportunity mm-hmm. to talk about the mathematics? How many times do they have the opportunity to, you know, play, you know, really play with the um, tools? How many times do they, you know, how many opportunities are they given to look at someone else's solution and think about it before the teachers told them, yes, it's right or no, it's wrong um, because, of, because of this factor of time. And so... Right. You know, how do they get to dig deeper into those types of problems that they really like that are relevant to them and really, you know, represent what they, you know, what they are passionate about? To, to add on to that, um, Levita, you're making me think about the ways that we talk to students in classrooms about their work. And so often students will say to the teacher or to me, if I'm in the classroom and I sort of have the posture of someone who understands math, they'll, you know, they'll call you over and say, is this right? And whether, I, whether I've ever seen the work in front of them or I designed it, my response is the same. It's, I don't know, tell me how you thought about it. Laying the foundation, <laughs> yes, laying mm-hmm. the foundation of what's important to me is your thinking, your answer. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'll say to kids all the time, your answer is way less interesting to me than how you thought about it. Mm-hmm. And that helps me understand what that student knows and what they don't and where they're coming from. And I think, how do we rather than just, yes, the answer is wrong, or no, it's not, and let me tell you what you did wrong, how do we just start from a place of hearing how students are thinking? Um, and I think sometimes in, in, along the lines of assumptions, we'll, we'll listen for the answer that we want or the explanation that we want or are expecting rather than to what the student is actually saying. And I, I think when we do right. that, we we miss, we have the potential to miss a lot of um, not just how the student thought about it, but also who they are in the way they approached it. And Nicole, you're talking, I hear in that explanation, in addition to these ideas about assumptions and identity, I hear that as a power, the move of a power broker who's working to establish equity. So the teacher in the classroom structure in school is inherently by position the power broker. And the moves we make throughout the lesson and throughout, you know, as we move between students, as they're learning, and as we f- facilitate learning, those either are moves to establish equity or they're moves to break it down. And um, one of the things you're describing is to when the students say the question of, is this right or wrong? They are asking the power broker to tell them. Um, and you, the teacher moved to step out of the position of power and say the power is in the way that you're thinking about it. And so I'm punting back to you. You tell me. 
I think that's one of the most beautiful things we can do in teaching space is to continually say back to your students that you have as much power to think about this idea and concept to figure it out back to that very initial comment you made about capability. You are capable of answering the question of whether or not this is right or wrong. And I'm happy to engage in that conversation with you, but that you don't need me to tell you whether it's yeah, right or wrong. Yeah. And I've been trying, I, I've been playing a little bit whenever I'm in classrooms. I, that's what kind of what I love about my job is that I'm, I don't have my own classroom, but I'm still in classroom so I can try new things with kids. And in addition to tell me how you thought about that, when a student explains their thinking, I'm trying not to say, yes, your answer is right or no, it's not. I'm trying to say to them, that makes sense to me, or that's mathematically sound. And then let them be the one to say, oh, so it's right. Do you know, like you, you've explained your thinking, it's mathematically sound. So do you really need me to tell you that it's right? And if there's a mistake, what I might say is, I'll, I'll, if there's a misconception that's mathematical, then we'll have that conversation. Um, but if it's correct and there's a calculation error, that's what I'll say. I'll say, your, your thinking is mathematically sound and makes sense to me. I think you might have calculated wrong. Go back and check your you know, subtraction or whatever. But, but I think the idea right. that a computation error is not on the same level as a deeply rooted misconception, like I think we need to establish that ah, you, 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 you did your subtraction wrong. Go back and check that. But, but again, trying to let them be the ones that, that understand, am I correct or am I not? And it doesn't have to come from me all the time. Okay. So we, um, as you both know, wrap up our podcasts with three questions in three minutes or less. And I'm going to ask a question and then give you both a chance to answer. Um, so first up, what are you currently reading right now? What are the books or the blogs? What are you, what would you recommend we put on our reading lists? So I, um, I am the owner of all the books and not always great about making space to read them, but I'm glad you brought blogs into the conversation. So in, in May, there was uh, a hashtag going around Twitter, hashtag 31 days, I-B-P-O-C, stands for Indigenous Black People of Color. And it was every day there was a new blog post by a person of color, and it was co-founded by Dr. Kim Parker. And so I didn't get a chance to read them every day, but I'm catching up on those. And I think those are worth a read. Thanks. Laveda? So one of the books that I'm reading right now is Culturally Culturally Specific Pedagogy in the Mathematics Classroom by Dr. Jacqueline Leonard. And so I'm reading this just to like further my own understanding and really um, thinking about culturally responsive, culturally specific, culturally sustaining pedagogy for mathematics and how to support teachers with um, the the students in front of them and thinking about, so how do you really... While you're thinking about instruction, how are you bringing and intersecting their cultures, their backgrounds, their um, home languages, and thinking about how to use that to support them, accelerate them into the mathematics that you're teaching at that grade level? So that's what I'm reading. (laughs) One of the many. Awesome. You said the word sustain, culturally sustainable pedagogy, which I, um, that word causes me to pause and think. And on that note, what do you both do to decompress or relieve stress? Um, Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha. Nicole, do you have a favorite? What are you, do you you have a recent Um, Netflix binge? You know, I feel like the Great British Baking Show and The Good Place (laughs) have literally gotten me through some, and I'm being serious, very stressful times in my life. Um, 
But yes. if I'm if I'm honest, if I just need something to just get my mind off mm-hmm. of it, it's the office over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> How about Favorite you, Lena? Things to do is to get a glass of wine or another adult beverage and sit down with my friends and just talk. Um, that that's, mm-hmm. you know, with my best with my best friends in LA, mm-hmm. um, also mm-hmm. my friends in in Chicago now. Like that's my favorite thing to do. And then that's when we like talk about more books that we're reading or don't have time to read or other other things that we're watching on Netflix. <laughs> and so yeah, that's what I love to do to decompress. Okay, last one. What is one universal truth about teaching and learning that guides the decisions you make as an educator? Can can I give you two? I guess for a small fee, for a small fee, Nicole, you can share too. Well, one's one I've already sort of mentioned, but I feel like is worth repeating is that our students are humans who come to us as more than one thing. And I think we need to honor that in, in the ways that we think and address them. So that's one. But the other one I want to say is uh, I truly, truly believe that when we make space for student thinking, that students will step into that space. So we need to take that risk and and open it up to their thinking. Mm-hmm. So good, Leveda. One of mine is it is always um, it's always been my theme. Like <laughs> all students can learn if we teach them well, and it's like every student has the capability. There's even research that has the capability of learning what you know, what we need to teach them. And it's just in the way that we do it. Um, another one that I always share when I'm when I'm doing professional learning or coaching when I have the opportunity to is that the one who's doing the talking is doing the learning. And it really connects to like what Marilyn says is we ask, we listen, we learn. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about how do we, you know, how do we listen mm-hmm. and truly listen without thinking about, oh my God, I don't know what students might say or I don't know what to do if they say this different thing that I think I need them to say. And so really just listening and, and allowing, um, as Nicole mm-hmm. said, your your students to be seen and heard. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Seen and heard. Ladies, we just want to extend a great big um, heartfelt Um, gratitude for you joining us in this conversation today. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your values and your beliefs um, and being vulnerable in this conversation. I know it's been been beneficial for Jennifer and I, and and hopefully to our listeners out there. And um, we just want to thank you. Thank you for having us. Okay. So if our followers want to find you on the interwebs, where would they look? I always forget it. At LA Mac girl, like Apple Mac, um, or the makeup I've been asked about at LA Mac girl on Twitter. Um, and then you can also read my blog at black girl math. Um, and it is on Blogspot. <laughs> Perfect. And Nicole. And I am at Nicole bridge one on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you both so much. Thanks for tuning in. Subscribe, download, and review wherever you find your podcasts to stay up to date with the latest episodes from Method to the Mathness. Your comments and reviews mean a lot to us. So share with us what you think and who you would like to hear from. Come find us on Twitter at Jennifer L. Math and at Nikki underscore Math Soul. That's N-I-K-K-I underscore 
math, M-A-T-H-S-O-L, and use the hashtag method to mathness. That's method, the number two, mathness. Thanks for listening.